0: Hello and welcome to Postcards from Heron County, a podcast that delves into some of the heritage of Ontario's West Coast. I'm your host Mandy Sinclair and since returning to the area after 20 years away I have enjoyed rediscovering the county and wanting to know more about the history of the region as I set out exploring the trails, small towns and more. So I'm inviting you to listen in as I sit down to chat with historians and community members who have a close connection to the topic in question. Before we start, I would like to acknowledge that I am recording at Faux Pop Studios in Goderidge, which is on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Neutral Peoples. I recognize the First Peoples' continued stewardship of the land and water, and that this territory was subject to the dish-with-one-spoon wampum, under which multiple nations agreed to care for the land and resources by the Great Lakes in peace. I would also like to acknowledge and recognize the Upper Canada Treaties signed in regards to Heron County, as settlers know it, which include Treaty 29 and Treaty 45 and a half. On today's episode, I'm joined in studio with Sinead Cox to talk about home children in Heron County and her family's heritage. Thank you so much for joining me here today at Faux Pop Studios. I'm so looking forward to our discussion. It's a topic that I find comes up in Canadian historical fiction, but doesn't really get much play in the history books. So this to me is very fascinating. And yet because you wrote an article, In your position as acting senior curator at the Huron County Museum about the home children who were sent to Canada from the UK and it's clear that this topic is close to your heart and also part of your family heritage. So I'm just wondering if you could start by telling listeners a bit about yourself, home children, and why you're interested in the subject. Right well thanks
1: so much for having me. Um, uh, I'm Sinead Cox. I'm uh, acting senior curator right now but in a couple weeks I will be back to being curator of engagement and dialogue at the Huron County Museum and historic jail here in Goderidge and so in my role doing interpretation and programming at the museum uh, if if I'm really lucky and I have enough time I get to do research into local (laughs) topics that impact here in County Um, that's one of the favorite things uh, to do with my time but we don't always have a lot of time for research (laughs) Um, and uh, so personally yeah my my own great-grandfather my uh, grandma's father was a home child uh, sent to Gray County when he was nine years old he was was shipped over to uh, Canada from the UK Um, and also my father's uh, great uncle who actually married into my extended family twice. He married uh, cousins, not simultaneously Mm -hmm. and uh, um, after one had passed away, um, Mm who was married to my my great aunt, great great aunt. Uh, He was also a home child here in Goddard Township. So in Huron County. So a few family connections uh, made me aware of home children from a young age and
0: very interested in the the history and what Okay, I'm going to get into the personal side, but let's just talk, I guess, generally about the home children. So what years were the children sent from the UK to Canada? And do you know, like, even specifically about Huron County?
1: So so largely, um, it was between sort of the 1860s and the 1930s was Mm -hmm. the majority um, of the charity homes. So uh, to give a little context for people who might not be at all familiar, so the charity homes in the UK um, is where the children would be sent and then they would actually match them to their receiving homes in Canada, Australia, South Africa. And then they would actually post in the newspaper. Um, And so they would come maybe to a receiving home in Toronto, for example, or Stratford or Belleville, and they'd actually advertise in the local papers that there was children that had come in and were available for local farmers to then uh, to then write in and ask for a child uh, for labor purposes. So the, the scheme was intended to help relieve urban poverty in the U.K. And the amount of young children who were on the streets sleeping in gutters, mm-hmm. um, and also that there was agricultural labor shortages happening in Canada at the time, especially by the the turn of the twentieth century. Um, so it was supposed to be this perfect marriage of uh, kids who needed a place to go. We're going to go get fresh air and jobs and a better future. Um, and in practice, you know, it doesn't really work out like that, but. Um, um, mm-hmm. In the really early period, the the governor general's wife, actually, Lady Dufferin, was on a ship with a bunch of children that were going to the McPherson home. And she talked about what a great idea this was and how wonderful it was that these kids were going to go to Canada. And it sort of breaks your heart <laughs> reading that mm-hmm. uh, uh, so many years later because it, it wasn't... Um, a great experience for a lot of these children.
0: And were there homes like you mentioned that there were receiving homes in Stratford and it sounds like more of the urban areas and then the local, the more rural areas would find out who was available and whatnot. Was there a receiving home or charity home in Huron County itself? Not
1: not that I'm aware of. No, there were in Stratford, though. Mm -hmm. Um, But some of the children that I know that were placed here were from different homes. So some of them were from Marchmont and Belleville. Some of them did come from uh, Stratford Uh, and they came from different um, charity homes in the UK. And Bernardo's was probably the most prolific and it's the most well-known. And so it became... uh, uh, sort of out of habit they would call all british home children children that came from british charity homes bernardo boys bernardo children even when they weren't mm-hmm. but i believe uh bernardo's of like the a hundred thousand plus children that were sent i think bernardo sent something like thirty thousand so wow. it, they they were definitely the most prolific and uh thomas bernardo who founded burnouters, obviously, um, was very aggressive in his policies. So um, he believed in what he termed philanthropic abduction. So he uh, would actually change children's birthdays, change their places of birth in their records so that they were harder to find by their families. And the assumption is that a lot of the children are orphans, right? But a Mm -hmm. lot of them did have um, siblings, parents uh, still in the UK who had put them in the homes not with the idea that they were going to be sent um an ocean away um, but with the idea that they needed that care sometimes temporarily so Mm -hmm. um, because of illness because of sudden unemployment all the same (laughs) the same problems that families come up against today Mm -hmm. and so there's lots of cases of parents going back to to get their kids and to find out that they had been uh sent to canada or australia
0: Wow. Yeah. So during these years over more than a hundred thousand children were sent to Canada from the UK and the children we're talking about were under the age of eighteen, most between the age of seven and fourteen, but some were even toddlers when they Arrived, were sent to Canada. Um, Some were orphans, as you said. Others were just from families who were unable to provide. But the groups who cared for these children felt that the children would have a better opportunity and chance for a healthy life in rural Canada. According to the Government of Canada website, about 70% of the home children were settled in Ontario. And Heron County was one of those rural locations that... um, we're seen to be a better opportunity for these children. And in fact, you told me um, in a recent conversation that about 10% of Canadians or 4 million current Canadians are descendants of home children. Can you tell us a little bit more about your family history? Family so my, my, my own family history, um My great grandfather
1: uh, was a home child sent at the age of nine. Um, And uh, everything we have is sort of oral history because he died the same month my grandmother was born um, Mm. in the Toronto Hospital for Poor Consumptives. So that's a very (laughs) Dickensian um, (laughs) life there. But uh, uh, so he he was sent over at age nine and he um, had a very typical experience to a lot of home children and that he moved around to multiple homes, um, was constantly moved uh, and was like so the charity homes themselves were in charge of the inspections so sometimes those were site inspections sometimes those were letters back and forth the children were supposed to be paid and they're supposed to be going to school but there wasn't a lot of oversight to actually make sure that happened (laughs) Um, and so he actually ended up like many home children including a lot of the cases that I've researched here in Huron County he served in the First World War and during that time he did um, find a relative that he had lived with actually before um, being put in the home he was with Fagans, which was another one of the charity homes Um, and she actually came over um, she she was in a workhouse previously in the UK and she actually came back and lived with him in Palmerston for a short time before she passed away and she was an aunt and uh, he is in the census living with her and her her husband ran an institute for the blind in Mm -hmm. London okay so all those like random uh, sort of genealogy facts that uh, you can find if you're doing Mm -hmm. research Um, and uh, yeah so he had um, a short but eventful life but that it is typical of many home children um, that a that they were moved around a lot that the inspections to them were very brief sometimes one sentence um, as to their care and that those records usually belong to the actual charity homes um, and that a lot of them s- served in the first and second World Wars. The the boys especially um, and and uh, it was a connection to empire and the same like nationalism and imperialistic feeling that a lot of Canadians felt. But I think for a lot of them it was also a chance to go home, which was very expensive, prohibitively Mm -hmm. expensive um, otherwise. So for a lot of them, it was their only chance to go
0: back to the UK. And did most of them, when they went back to the UK, would they come back to Canada or? Uh, did yeah, any of them
1: mo- most stay? of them that I that I know of came back um, mm-hmm. uh, Bernard Brown from the the chiselhurst area actually was killed in action um, and he was one of the stories covered in a immigration exhibit that the museum did a few years ago so I had the privilege of researching his story and uh, his brother also served and they were sent over to Canada at the same time but sent to different homes so they were split up so his brother <laughs> was sent to Ripley and he was sent to Huron County County. and after the uh, war, his brother ended up coming to meet the family that he had stayed with and marrying someone in the Eggmanville area. And so there's lots of brown descendants uh, now oh, in Huron wow. County because of that. Um, And uh, there is also the case of uh, Hugh Russell, which was a case that was very well covered in the wing of advance because he wrote letters back to his host family um, while he was serving the First World War. And he had a devastating case of what we would now term PTSD, but at the Mm -hmm. time was shell shock. And he actually uh, was mute. He lost the ability to speak for um, several years after uh, his service. And so he came back um, and was in hearing County for a while in different places in Ontario. And he actually just regained. There were some horses that were breaking away. And he actually just said, whoa, one day and regained the ability to talk, um, which was a it just sounds like a very like uh, if you were writing a novel, someone would think that was a little <laughs> too. Yeah. Um, pat. But
0: that's uh, really what happened. So wow. Yeah. And so you mentioned that a lot of the children, um, they moved around quite a bit. So the families would find out that they were available and they would adopt them, I guess, in a sense. So yeah, so they would
1: have like a contract and they were supposed to be going to school and certain things. And uh, in the in a perfect world, they would have been treated like members of the family. Mm -hmm. But the need that they were serving was labor shortage. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the farmhands became increasingly hard to find And a lot of younger sons and stuff were moving out to the Western provinces at this time. Um, And so what the farmers wanted was uh, help. And so a lot of these children, they were coming from London, um, Belfast, they weren't farm kids. They Mm -hmm. didn't have a background in that. They were separated from their whole safety net their whole families yeah. there they, they had they would come with no friends no family they were extremely lonely and so they're dealing with all of that emotional stress and mental health issues mm-hmm. as you can imagine young kids yeah. who've just been shipped across and also not experienced with farm work. So sometimes they would run away or they would be sent back um, because their personality was unsuitable or because they couldn't actually do the work that the the um, farmers wanted them to do, which isn't surprising. Mm-hmm. So, and so then what would their fate be so they would be moved around to different homes and so they would try to rehome them and some their some of the charity homes did have um, their own farms um that uh that they worked on as well if they didn't have a placement but uh they would essentially be rehomed until sort of they aged out of the system yeah. or they um had a good placement they finally found a place where they sort of matched um and a lot of them the privilege that they they did have as kids that came from the uk is that that was the that's the, was the dominant culture and settler society here so if they if they survived um they could marry into local society easy and get a job if they okay. survived the those hardships. They did have that advantage of, you know, they're speaking the language mm-hmm. and all of that, um, but they they were definitely othered. Um, when they arrived because of their accents, because yep. they were urban kids. And so it was a, it was a really lonely existence for some of them. And you do you do hear horror stories of kids, you know, that were sleeping in the barn, not the house. And mm-hmm. and because they they didn't have any family close by or people that are checking in on them, um, they were immensely vulnerable to yeah.
0: abuse. hmm. What was your um, it was your great uncle who ended up in Godridge Township? yes so he he was a homeboy
1: I believe he was a Bernardo boy um great great uncle Jack Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I I never met him but he was uh still spoken highly of and remembered very well um in our family and I think was it two or three times he married into my extended family like cousins of cousins and just unlucky that his his wife's passed away mm-hmm. um early in their lives but i i kind of think that is uh, a testament to when you find a family when you don't have family um you kind of you stay tight-knit and you really appreciate it and so that he did become very integrated into the sort of porter's mm-hmm. hill Goddard township area okay
0: so. and do you know like what he did for work as a home child so
1: uh, I assume farm work. Mm-hmm. So I'm not as as familiar with his childhood. Um, I know that la- it was largely the the kind of work that you would expect. Sometimes kids on the farm. Sometimes grown men like um, uh, a hired hand to do. Mm-hmm. And the, these are kids as young as eight in some yeah. cases, as, uh, as you said. So uh, it was, and that was uh, a lot of the cases that you do hear of that. Uh, show up in our newspapers because something has gone wrong. There was a lot of accusations of overwork and that um, Mm -hmm. the that the kids were being asked to do, you know, a man's uh, work. Mm -hmm. Um, And there was a lot a lot of accusations of uh, harsh punishments for not doing work. So um, a case that became quite well known was in Colburn Township, uh, the case of Charles Bullpit. He was only 16 years old when he died by suicide and um that case brought a lot of attention by the 1920s there was a lot of criticism growing for the the home child system so this was something that the the coroner's jury and the coroner took it upon themselves um to say we directly blame this system for this boy's death he was lonely he had no recreation he wasn't being paid mm-hmm. sufficiently he wasn't um, he was being overworked and uh, he was being uh, corporally punished by the farmer Benson Cox in Colburn Township and he had no right to punish him because he wasn't an apprentice or his own child which in those rights in those cases you did have the right to do um, reasonable punishment and because he admitted that he had uh, whipped him as soon as the day that he he passed away. Um, So that that was a case where the Toronto Papers picked it up. And it was provincially, at least if not nationally and internationally, um, Mm -hmm. uh, a case that had a lot of eyeballs on it. It was very controversial locally because a lot of Uh, Mr. Cox's neighbors wrote a petition to um, reduce his sentence because he ended up being uh, sentenced to two months for assault, two months in jail, and uh, here at the here in historic jail now. Um, And there was also a lot of outrage and um, for the system in general. And the um, British Welfare and Welcome League actually raised money by subscription for Charles's tombstone, which is in the Colburn Cemetery um, today. So and did Mr. Cox actually go to spend the two months in jail. He did. And so the petition was to reduce his uh, time spent. So he, he was eventually released, but he did spend time in jail. Wow.
0: Yeah. Uh, and who was Like the outrage because, you know, the church and the charitable organizations felt that the children would have better opportunities in Canada. And yet this is the outcome. Like who was outraged? Was it member of the churches or like and the charitable organizations, the community? It was uh, so it was it was uh, members of the community at large. Mm
1: Um, It was recent British immigrants, too, because uh, I think there was a sort of uh, clanism of like these kids were British kids. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, there was some talk of British sentiment. um, That was definitely um, in favor of uh, of harsh punishment for the farmer in this case. And the, the other thing that was brought up by the coroner. And so you there you have the our local legal system itself, Mm -hmm. making a statement. The coroner himself brought up um, that the Children's Aid Society should start taking over the inspections from the homes so that there was some kind of local knowledge and local safety net there for these kids because Mm -hmm. the inspection homes. So for Charles Bullpit, his his home was Marchmont in Belleville. So you can imagine how often people are coming to Colburn from from Belleville to check in on them in person. Whereas if you have a local Children's Aid Society, society Um, then there's more of chance a that they know anything about the area the neighbors Mm -hmm. the family and that if they see something that's not right that they can come more than one day they can check back in so that was something that was identified um and so so near the end of the the home children coming to canada you see that public opinion is turning against the Mm -hmm. um, system and some of these abuses are are coming to light and so that was a case that really um brought uh a lot of attention and represented i think the struggles of a lot of kids that didn't get that attention he wasn't the only uh home child to die by suicide or to die prematurely
0: mm-hmm.
1: so um and uh, some of the but sadly, some of the um, objections to the home children being sent here earlier weren't objections for the welfare of the children at all. They were a lot of sort of eugenicist um, fears about. So the, the, they were termed waifs, strays, mm-hmm. street Arabs. And where there was this fear that these are the criminal children of, you know, urban England and actually the MP for East Huron. In the 1880s and 1890s, uh, Peter MacDonald, Dr. Peter MacDonald, spoke uh, against uh, subsidizing the passage of the children um, because they were sent over in ships, Um, not for the sake of the children, but because he was afraid that, you know, these inferior kids were going to intermarry with our nice Canadian (gasps) families. And so that was um, uh, eugenicist fear Mm -hmm. that these were inferior kids. Um, and that we had, we as Canadians should be afraid of them because they're, they're a criminal element, um, uh, which, you know, ironically now, as we spoke, uh, there's probably about 4 million of us that yeah. are descended <laughs> from the home children. So mm-hmm. too late. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, they intermarried. Yeah. Um, but that, and that was definitely, um, part of the sort of pseudoscience of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of people who otherwise had politics, we think of as like very progressive and reform, including a lot of uh, so, sort of who we would deem feminists at that time were very much uh, into eugenics.
0: So and wow. for sterilizations and all that stuff. So, hmm. yeah, as I said earlier, I just I find this subject really interesting and it's not something that's very obvious in the mainstream history chapters of our country yeah. and in fact it was only when i was in ottawa in the hintonburg area say like four or five years ago i was walking with one of my friends and she pointed out the historical plaque at the house the, the charity home in their neighborhood in of ottawa and that she kind of explained it to me and then i picked up have you read um jean graham has a historical fiction called the forgotten home child no i haven't it's a beautiful yeah. like really well researched gorgeous book um even like Anna Green Gables, to you know, her character is based on a home child. She's been sent over and Matthew and Marilla like adopt her and they had wanted a boy to help with the farm labor. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm just wondering, like we talked a bit about some of the, the male care, like the males yeah. um, that were sent here. What about the females?
1: So yeah, there definitely were girls
0: sent over. There's
1: uh, in my research, there's none in Huron County that I've particularly researched, mm-hmm. but you could you could definitely do that those searches. Uh, our newspapers are a great place to find those. Mm-hmm. And yeah, in the case of um, Anne of Green Gables, it, it is actually a really fascinating insight into those kind of attitudes because what they talk about is that they they thought about getting a Bernardo boy and decided against it. They wanted a born. Canadian because they would have felt safer so there's that same that trickle mm-hmm. down from uh the political discourse to people in their you know in their kitchens in the case of like Marilla and mm-hmm. Matthew being like I don't know about these kids mm-hmm. um and uh so yeah so there was, there was definitely there were girls as well and they were um often doing uh, again farm work but also some
0: of those sort of domestic, domestic. Yep. chores yeah that's kind of the um yeah Obviously, it's a historical fiction, the the forgotten home child, but it's exactly that like they would help with sewing and things around, like more exactly domestic chores. So um, does the county have any ancestral records of where the children hailed from in the UK, though? Yeah. So um, usually, the people
1: with the the records are the charity homes, and uh, the the British government has officially apologized for um, the the home children the whole scheme of British home children or immigrant children being sent to the Commonwealth countries. Um, and so as part of that, usually there's limited fees involved if you're a descendant to um, to actually to talk to Bernardos or to Fagans or wherever your ancestors records are. Uh, if you are a direct descendant, then you're usually um, you are uh, qualified to ask for those records. Um, and sometimes there there may be fees in that. Um, and and then there's also uh, the censuses. So the British mm-hmm. censuses and then the Canadian censuses are very helpful in finding um, records. And then Library and Archives Canada has a whole section on their website that helps you to research if you're researching mm-hmm. your uh, home child uh, ancestor. And those include the ship uh, records, which are very helpful because they can show you where your ancestor came in because they came on boats. So there's yeah. those records. Um, so out at the museum, uh, Uh, We have over a hundred years of our newspapers digitized and keyword searchable. So um, the great thing about the British home children is because their homes are easy keywords. It's um, it's sometimes very easy to find information about uh, about them by searching things like Bernardo's um, Mm -hmm. homeboy, um, those sort of keywords, uh, because sometimes you have to do that initial research to even figure out which home your ancestor came from. If you don't know. Mm -hmm. And there's a few uh, advocacy groups um, that uh, have a lot of people who have been researching home children for years. So there's (laughs) a lot of online help if you don't know where to start. Um, There are Facebook groups. Um, But at the museum, if you know the name of your ancestor, then we can see if we have anything related to them by name. Mm -hmm. And then also those uh, farm records. So like land registry records from the early period returns of inhabitants um, that would include um hired hands and servants uh in those records as well so there's lots of places you can start it can seem overwhelming if you're not used (laughs) to doing genealogy Mm so it's uh the best place to start is really um within your family to get those details of what you know like do you know what home they came from um and the, the sad thing about home children is so some of the ones i have worked at the information i got from the family about how old they were, what their birthday was, where they were from was wrong. And I mean, yeah. which isn't, um, which isn't really hard to understand considering kids were sent mm-hmm. over at so young, seven, mm-hmm. eight, nine, but it was also because, uh, in Bernardo's case specifically, they did this. They would, as I mentioned, change those facts so that yes. they would be harder to track down by family. Um, and it meant that a lot of people were sort of robbed of their past.
0: hmm yeah. Do you have any um stories of where say a child arrived? with the family and really integrated into the family setting did that happen oh
1: for for sure it happened Mm -hmm. i mean like people are good and bad Mm -hmm. and all the things for sure so um uh actually hugh russell that i mentioned who suffered from the very serious shell shock in the Mm -hmm. first world war he was very close um with his family in turnbury township that he was um uh that he was placed with and uh actually the son of the family graham was his lifelong friend and sort of uh next of kin um, and the the same with um Um, with Bernard Brown he stayed with the Leach family near Chislehurst um, for a very long time and um, when he was killed in action uh, Mrs. Leach was his beneficiary Mm -hmm. so there there definitely were those ties to Mm -hmm. the families and people that stayed on that married into the families Uh, all of the all of those things did happen it wasn't um even but even in those stories uh the 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 whole process must have been extremely traumatic and, Mm. uh, uh, negative to uproot them and send them and then essentially have them as indentured labor mm-hmm. um, but there were definitely happy happy endings for a lot of people who um, uh, were able to integrate into the community and I, I think it's it probably made a big difference in the family and how they viewed and treated them whether mm-hmm. they saw them as a member of the family or whether they saw them as okay this is my hired help yeah for a season and these kids who didn't have anyone else They didn't need a job. They needed they needed families. They needed care. Because Uh, they were
0: placed in care until the age of 18. Is that right? So
1: yeah, when you were 18, you were (laughs) an adult. So then (laughs) you would be responsible for finding your own work. Um, And uh, I'm not sure when it was probably up to 16 or something that they would have had to stay in school. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so at, at a certain point, you know, you're left to your own devices to find work and take care of yourself. So um and which, again, puts them at a disadvantage to everyone who has a family that's going to help them yes. get started because the, and they're they're akin to um not in other ways, but uh, in some ways they're akin to, you know, when refugees come, they don't get to choose where they go. They are just placed. And it was the same with uh, these their kids. So they they didn't get to choose that. They got to stay with their brothers and sisters Mm -hmm. or that they wanted to go to this part of Ontario or uh, or if uh, a family moved or stopped farming and they went back to the charity home, they couldn't come back you know, to yes. the community if they had liked going to school there or something <laughs> like that. They didn't have a lot of control over their lives at all. And
0: so do you, like, I guess then once they became 18, around here, do you have any stories of, like, what people would go on to do? Like, would they stay on living with the family as a hired hand or yeah, like would they... I guess once you have yeah. agricultural skills then that's what, you know, right. Would they continue working in the agricultural industry?
1: Yeah. So it as a mix, some uh, absolutely um, would either continue on with the family or get work in the neighborhood as, yeah. again, doing farm work. Um, and some ended up in urban areas as well, mm-hmm. um, doing every kind of sort of um, unskilled labor job that was available to them. Um, but some did. Uh, were able to work enough and married into local families that they could actually yeah. farm themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them you see in their attestation papers um, for the First World War. A lot of them list their job as either labor or farmer because farming is what yeah. they've been doing since they were young children in a lot of cases. So mm-hmm. that that was their trade. Yeah.
0: Wow. Hmm. It's just such a like interesting topic. And so then with your great uncle, did he come on go on to be a farmer? Yes, he was a farmer. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And And my great grandfather, uh, he was a
1: um, fireman on the railways. So yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. OK, that's so a, that's g- the hot job where you like shovel the coal <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to make the train go is my understanding, mm-hmm. with my limited understanding of how trains work. But
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, so like they stayed in the local local areas and whatnot. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, which I think like that was where the only ties they had were yeah. were often with the families they'd been placed with or people that they worked for. So that's the ties they had. And as as I mentioned, to go back to the UK uh, would have been really expensive. And a lot of them didn't have any way to contact their family. Mm-hmm. So this was, you know, before if you, they'd left, you know, when they were so young, they didn't often know who, mm-hmm. where their family lived or what their what where to yeah. find them. So it was uh, so it was those that did go back during the First World War or otherwise and did find family that that was more the exception than the rule mm-hmm. for sure.
0: Wow. Um, yeah. It's a heavy topic. Yeah. As the um... Acting Senior Curator at the Heron County Museum, are there any artifacts or displays at the museum where listeners could go to witness firsthand this history? Yeah. So I would
1: say um, from home, you can if you go to hearingcountymuseum.ca, you can check out our newspapers, which I've mentioned, which are a great wealth of resources. And then there is our archives and reading room, which you can make an appointment. And we're actually doing virtual appointments now. So you can actually uh, talk to our archivists from home to do a research appointment. Um, And then uh, so we had a temporary exhibit back in 2016 that was Immigration Stories. So we bring out different stories for our temporary exhibits all the time. um, and then uh, there is also information on our website under stories. We have blog posts
0: and articles there. So, Brilliant. yeah. All right. Well, yeah. thank you so much for joining me here today, Sinead, and sharing an audio postcard about this chapter of Huron County history. It's been an absolute delight to meet you, but also hear your personal connection to the home children in this part of our local history. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. If you're keen to explore the food scene in Huron County, you'll want to know about Tasting Huron County curated food experiences delivered. We do breakfast and picnic deliveries and like to think of these as a delivery from a Huron County-wide farmer's market. All deliveries are abundant and feature products produced right here in the county. But if a walking tour is more your jam, Tasting Huron County's Goddard's Tasting Trail takes visitors on a half-day guided tour of the food scene while mixing in architecture and history. To find out more, visit tastingheroncounty.ca, that's all one word, for more details. I'd like to thank the Huron Heritage Fund for their support of this podcast. If you're in Huron County, one of my favorite places to wander is the Huron County Museum and the nearby Huron Historic Jail, particularly during special events. And the museum is free for Huron County library card holders. So I'd like to give a shout out to Community Futures Huron for their support of this podcast. If you're thinking of setting up shop in Huron County, I cannot say enough great things about this team. When I was in the exploration stages of creating a PR agency, event company, tasting Huron County, I wasn't exactly sure what, but I gleaned an incredible amount of information from the resourceful Community Futures team before finally settling down in Huron County once again. I'd also like to thank Clint Mackey, Andrew Bauk, Nick Vinicombe, and Mark Hussey at Faux Pop Media, who produce and generously support Postcards from Heron County. Thank you so much for listening. If you're a fan of Postcards from Heron County, I would be so grateful if you would rate or review this podcast on your favorite channel or share on your social media networks. Just don't forget to tag me at Postcards from Heron County so I can be sure to thank you for helping share my love of Heron County.